Welcome to Creativity School. This is the podcast all about how to tap into your creativity and get your greatness out of you and into the world. I'm your host, Grace Chan, and each week we'll get lessons on how to start the thing you've always wanted to start and learn the tips and strategies you need for how to be awesome at it. If you're one of those people that feels a calling to do something, make something, or be something more, if you want to start shining your light and share it with the world, this is the show for you. Let's get started. Hey everyone, welcome back to episode 15 of Creativity School. Today's episode is brought to you by Audible. Audible is a wonderful way to listen to your books the way you listen to podcasts. I personally love using Audible. I take a walk with my dog every morning, and if I'm not listening to a podcast, I am listening to a book on Audible. So if you want to keep that feeling of inspiration and motivation and all that good juju going after you listen to this show, I highly recommend you go to Audible and download a book. Today, I'm going to recommend a really great book all about money mindset. It's a topic that I have read so much about and I want to bring on a guest at some point to interview about money mindset because it's so important about how you think and feel about money. And I really want to recommend Jen Sincero's book, You Are a Badass at Making Money. It is a great book to get started on learning about your money mindset. And if you want to get started with a free audiobook download and a 30-day trial, head over to audible.com trial.com slash grace chan audible is spelled a-u-d-i-b-l-e that's audibletrial.com slash grace chan you can download my recommendation or another audiobook there are over 180,000 books to choose from and you can try it out for free and see how you like it so guess what today on creativity school We are celebrating a pretty momentous occasion, and that is that Creativity School is 100 days old. In Korean culture, we call that the Pegil, and the 100-day celebration for a Korean baby is very momentous because back in the day, babies just didn't really make it to 100 days. So now Korean families traditionally celebrate the 100th day of a baby being born. It is a really big milestone. It is a wonderful thing to celebrate, and I am doing that for this show. I think anything you put out into the world is like your little creative baby, and this idea just stated in my head and in my body for six months before I birthed it out into the world, and I am so happy to celebrate 100 days of doing this. I can't believe, first of all, it's been 100 days. That's a little over three months. I had no idea how I would feel about this at this point, and I have to say, it's been awesome. I am loving these conversations. I am loving connecting with you guys. And for me personally, on my own creativity journey, having a show like this feels so liberating. I mean, we talk on the show about owning who you really are and being unafraid to be your most authentic self as you create work. And as a photographer for the last 11, 12 years now, I've always put my photos at the forefront and I've always been comfortable hiding in the back. And so now to have this creative medium where it's literally just my voice connecting with you and it's my ideas and my philosophies and the guests I bring on, 
that was so terrifying at first, and now it is so truly liberating. So I want to thank you all for going on this journey with me as I start this new creative thing of mine. And I'm so encouraged by all of you who are out there tapping into your own courage and making the things that you want to make. Henry Matisse says that creativity takes courage. And I absolutely agree because to dig so deep inside of you and give birth and put out into the world something that you care about, it's terrifying. I completely get it. And I'm so encouraged by you listening out there who are doing it anyway. You're so brave and so awesome. And I'm so excited that this podcast exists where we can connect and celebrate this journey and this process that we're all doing together. So yay, happy 100 days creativity school. And you guys all know having a newborn is crazy. Okay, if you haven't experienced it for yourself, Nothing I say can even properly explain to you how incredibly crazy having a newborn is. It is an an entirely new experience that... I can't even like begin to describe. It's like trying to explain the color blue to somebody that's never seen the color blue before. And my mom told me over and over again, Grace, it's going to get easier after the first hundred days. I promise you. I didn't believe her at first because I was like, there's no way this crazy stuff is going to get easier. But she was right. It did. And I think that parallel to this show and just creating something in general is fascinating because I'm not going to lie. The first 100 days of this show was challenging to say the least because I have a career, because I'm a mom, and I really just had to get really good with my time management, figure out where in my schedule I could work on this show. I sacrificed meeting up with friends, having lunch with friends. I really cut back on my texting with friends. I was waking up at 4.30 in the morning. I was putting nose to the grindstone and doing what I could as best as I could and as hard as I could for the first 100 days of this show. And you have to do that when you're starting something new. I mean, if you want to turn your creative thing into a business, you have to treat it like that, right? It takes work. It takes time. It takes hustle. I hate the word hustle, but I think in the beginning when you're starting something, your baby requires that attention and that discipline. And at some point on that journey, you're going to have to start figuring out how can I grow this thing? What is something that I can do to make this thing go bigger and faster? And so for me, I decided to take the advice of many people on my show. I think it was specifically Kendra Holly's episode where she said she just took the plunge and quit her job. Well, I decided to just take the plunge and hire an editor. Up until this point, I have edited every single episode of this show. As I said, waking up at 4.30 in the morning to do it and sacrificing a lot of things to get everything up and running. And I realized, okay, you know what? I think we've reached the time now where I'm ready to grow a little bit and see what happens. So today's episode is the last episode that I edited all by myself because I brought on an amazing editor to work with me on this show. And I am so excited now because I have extra time now where I can use that time to do things that I can bring the most value to. So I just wanted to share that with you because it is a part of the journey of this podcast and it's, it's a part of what could happen for you in the future with your own creative thing. You're going to get your baby out into the world. You're going to put a lot of time into it. It's going to be challenging. Even though you're doing what you love, it's going to be challenging. 
but you can do it because whether it's a human baby or a creative baby, things are hard in the beginning and just stick with it. Be disciplined, be focused at it, and you're going to reach a point, it might not be 100 days, but you will reach that point where things start getting easier because you can hire people to help you or you can outsource stuff or you quit your full-time job to be able to focus more on your thing. You're going to reach a point where you're going to want to grow and you're going to have to make some decisions and take a little bit of a risk. And I did it. So we'll see what happens. I am so excited about today's episode with Simon Tam. Simon is a multi-passionate, multi-talented creative guy. He's the bassist and founder of the world's first and only Asian-American dance rock band called The Slants. He's a writer and author of three books, most recently his memoir that just came out that's called Slanted. How an Asian American Troublemaker Took on the Supreme Court. We'll get to that in a minute. And he's also a prolific speaker doing TED Talks. So this guy has so much creative output. And today's episode with Simon is all about how you can create positive change in the world through your creativity. You can use your art and your voice as activism to change things in the world that you feel like need to be addressed and changed. And he talks to us about creating things from your values and making the things that you want to see in the world, because it is entirely possible to make an impact in the world with your creative expression. And what I love about this conversation with Simon today is that he has faced so many obstacles in his life, so much discrimination against the work that he makes and put out into the world purely because of the way he looks and because he is Asian. And why I think this message is so important is because he talks so much about how he overcame this kind of adversity and the really difficult choices that he's had to make over and over again every time that he's faced an obstacle like this. I just said this earlier in the episode that creativity takes courage. And I really admire how over the course of his life, Simon has pretty consistently committed to making the work that he knew he had to make, even if it meant that he was choosing the harder path. I love hearing how he makes it through these extremely difficult challenges and obstacles that he's come across over the course of his journey. And I love that he shares why he does it, why it's so important and what keeps him going through these very extreme challenges. And Simon and his band The Slants have been in the news quite extensively over the last few years because they tried to trademark their band name, The Slants, and the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office, also known as the USPTO, they denied him their trademark and rejected it because they said the name, The Slants, is disparaging to people of Asian descent. So Simon and his band were locked in a lawsuit with the USPTO for eight years. And in 2017, that suit went all the way to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court unanimously sided with Simon and his band, saying that they had freedom of expression and that the U.S. government had infringed on their free speech. This was a landmark case. 
We don't talk about this too long because it would end up being a two-hour interview, but I'm going to link just to some of the news stories in the show notes in case you're interested. I mean, he was on The Daily Show. He was on Forbes, CNN, BBC. You, you name the media outlet. He was on it. So this conversation today is all about making the work that you know you have to make despite the odds, despite people not believing in you, despite having to fight the U.S. government to have the right to use the name that you want. I really enjoyed this conversation today with Simon. I hope you do too. If you find his story interesting, check out his memoir, Slanted. It's available on Amazon. And without further ado, here is Simon Tam. Hi, Simon. Thank you so much for joining me on my show today. I am so excited to have you on. Hi, thanks so much for having me. As I mentioned to you in our pre-record conversation, in doing my research on you, I gathered seven pages of notes, and it's the most I've ever gathered on anyone before because you are such a prolific creative person. So I'm just going to name a couple things that you've done just so the listeners have an idea of what you're up to. But you are the bassist and founder of the world's first and only Asian American dance rock band called The Slants. You've been doing that for the last 12 years. Is that correct? Yeah, just about. Just about. You've had five albums? Yeah, we're actually releasing our seventh. Oh my gosh. Wow. Okay, well, that's a lot. And I saw online 22 national tours. Is it more than that now? Yeah, I think we're close to 30. Oh my God. It's kind of funny because it just feels like one long tour sometimes. It all mushes together, I'm sure. And you're a writer and you're an author of two books and you have an upcoming memoir coming out next month. That's correct, yeah. And I'm not done yet, you guys. Simon has set a world record by appearing on the TEDx stage 13 times. That's crazy and amazing. And most recently, and I think maybe this is what a lot of people know about your story, is that you were in a legal battle with the USPTO, which is the US Patent and Trademark Office, for eight years over your band name, The Slants. Last year, the Supreme Court, this went all the way to the Supreme Court, and they ruled in your favor unanimously. Yeah, thankfully. (laughs) We're going to start digging into some of these things here, but I mean, like, do you sleep? (laughs) Every night. If I didn't, I I don't know how I would get anything done. (laughs) Oh, you get so much done. It's kind of bananas. And as I mentioned, you know, there's just so much information about you and all your accomplishments on the internet. But I would love for you to tell us in your own words, who is Simon Tam? I, I usually just use one word, I, and I just call myself a troublemaker. <laughs> um, for me, it's really, especially in the last few years, I like to focus on the intersection of arts and activism, which I believe are connected profoundly. And I, I believe that I can use either kind of thing, like just this expression of wanting to make the world a better place in some way. And I just kind of use that as my guiding force to decide what I do from from day to day, moment to moment. That's a really great intention to always have in your work. And I really appreciate you sharing that because I think having an overarching theme in our work is really important. The question I usually always start off with is, what did you want to be when you grew up as a kid? You know, for a long time, I wanted to be a musician. Like the first time my parents gave me a bass guitar, I just thought, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. 
but they quickly jumped all over that. <laughs> they wanted me to either be a doctor, a lawyer, or kind of like almost like a typical kid of Asian parents who, who immigrated here. They wanted me to do something that they thought was dependable and that could be very lucrative. But I never really saw it that way. So I just kind of started chasing down things that I really enjoyed doing. Like I dropped out of college a few months before graduating to tour in a punk rock band. I went and, and just pursued my passions while still trying to go back to school and do, doing the things that would make them happy. But ultimately, I think it it's kind of funny because now I am a bass player. And so that, that dream that I had as a kid was fully realized. Although my parents still have no idea what I do for a living. <laughs> <laughs> do they know what happened with the Supreme Court and everything like that? Do they understand that incredible journey you went on? Well, they like kind of know, but I don't think they really get it. Like they don't really understand why I pursued the case and how much of a big deal it was. It, it's like for them, their frame of reference is very different than you know, how I navigate the world. I remember a few years ago, I, I called my dad. I was really excited. I was like, dad, I'm in Time Magazine. And he's just like, so I, I don't, I, I don't read time. What is, what's that? And I, was like, and I was like, dad, it's kind of a big deal. And he's just like, well, when are you going to be in the Chinese newspaper? Like for him, his standards is like the Chinese newspaper is the ultimate newspaper. So it didn't matter if I was on like NPR or HBO or Rolling Stone. He didn't read any of those things. He didn't listen to the program. So he was just like, call me when, when you hit the paper that I read. And <laughs> I, it's just kind of one of those funny things that eventually, like last year, I was on the front page of the Chinese newspaper and he like freaked out. Like <laughs> my, my parents went to the every Asian market in San Diego and bought like every copy of the paper. And I'm like, I don't, my goodness. He started sending like pictures from it, which is really funny because I can't read what any what the article says. But it was like at that moment, they started thinking, oh, maybe like he did something important, even though they still kind of like, when are you going to get a day job? When are you going to? Oh, my God. That is hilarious. I feel like that is so relatable to a lot of Asian creative people who have been successful in their fields. Like their parents have no idea what they do. And, you know, you could get this really big accolade and it really doesn't mean anything to them. So congratulations for making it on the front page of a Chinese newspaper, Simon. <laughs> Thank you. Maybe one day I'll figure out what it says. It's so fascinating to me about you because you just seem to be this person that starts things. You started a band. You started a blog. You have a podcast. You recently started a nonprofit. Where does this urge to constantly create new things come from? It's probably from that same idea of like wanting to do something artistic or to do something activist oriented. I think it kind of goes back to my younger years. So when I was a teenager, I had a couple of mentors who really like to focus on leadership. And one of them told me this, he said, Simon, there are three kinds of people in this world. There are those who make things happen. There are those who wait for things to happen. And then there are those people who wonder what the heck just happened. And he said, mm be someone who makes things happen. And I think some element of that stuck with me for kind of most of my life because I, I was like, you know, I'm going to make it happen. If I don't see it in the world, 
why wait for someone else to do it? I'm just going to go ahead and just go for it. That is incredible advice, but I also think that that's the kind of advice that can be hard to put into practice. That's the kind of stuff where people can tell you and you absorb it as knowledge, but it's hard to actually take the action and do it. Like, what do you think it is about you that makes you such a go-getter and do those things? And I ask this question because I feel like it's almost like this mystery I'm constantly trying to unravel on this show. Some people just go out and do things and some people don't. Do you have any idea what it is about you in particular that was able to take that advice and take action with it? You know, I wouldn't say that I'm like special in that regard or anything like that. I think that everyone has the capacity to to actually take action on things. Just for one reason or another, we have something that holds us back. It might be fear. It might be insecurity. It might be just this idea of like the unknown, or we just get caught up with other kinds of things that take priority. For me, I just decided to visualize what those goals were, and that entailed trying to make the world better in some kind of way. So I thought, well, what's going to change if I don't do anything? And the reality is like nothing was going to change. It was just going to be the status quo. So for me, I saw that as the bigger price. There's a lot of people who talk about chasing your dreams and they'll say, Mm -hmm. you got to pay the price. You got to sacrifice. That's the cost of chasing your dreams. But to me, the bigger price that you pay for going after your passions or the things that you care about isn't what you have to sacrifice in order to obtain those things. It's what you sacrifice when you don't. Like the kind Mm. of person you start becoming when you start letting injustices occur in your life. The kind of person you start becoming when you realize that it's okay for you to give up something you really care about because you'd rather do something else or because you let that fear take over. And I never wanted to become that person because it would be the kind of person I would not want to respect or to admire or to follow at all. I, I thought... Who are the people who are most important to me and what can I do to make sure that I don't let them down? Yeah, I I really love what you just shared when you said, it's not what am I sacrificing in doing this, it's what am I sacrificing in not doing this? And I really relate to that because in my own journey, people ask me a lot, you know, how were you able to make the jump from biology to working as an art director and then working as an art director to becoming a commercial and editorial photographer? And my thing was always that I understand that there's a lot of fear doing things that you've never done before and jumping into the unknown. But the thing that scared me more than anything is regret and really looking back and wishing I had done something and taken the action and then not done it because the fear held me back. So I really relate to what you're saying. And I think when you put it in that framework, it can help people really start taking those first steps to moving forward. Yeah. I mean, it's like, I think we just sometimes create barriers for ourselves that we don't need to. And a lot of that comes from this place of insecurity or just the unknown. And once we kind of learn to deal with those things, like those hidden fears that we have about what might or might not happen, it's amazing what we can actually accomplish from, from doing that. That is very true. But it also sounds like you started doing this at a very young age. How did you cultivate such a self-awareness so young? Hmm. That's a, <laughs> I'm not quite, not quite sure. I mean, I think a lot of it comes from, from my parents. I grew up uh, the kid of two immigrants who just needed to do anything and everything in order to survive. And so I think part of that survival instinct, this idea of perseverance and persistence came from watching my parents do what they needed to do to take care of the family. 
And I think the the other part of it was just trying to be very intentional in terms of like the things that I would do. As a kid, while most of the people around me were playing in little league or pee wee football or joining clubs, like I couldn't do that because I had to help my parents work in a restaurant. And I would see how hard they would work and, and just realize, okay, what can I do to make this a little easier on them? And so, like, even at I think eight or nine years old, I started thinking about how we could streamline our restaurant business. And I wow. started thinking like, hey, you know, if we fold menus this way, it'll actually save like 30 minutes a day. And I started thinking about systems that I could do to help them out. And my parents, to their credit, just kind of let me do whatever I wanted. They're just like, oh, sure, go for it. If it works, it works. And I think just experiencing these little wins, just like saying, oh, this made life a little easier for my mom, I kind of got this almost like a cue that, hey, if you try something out and it works, the payoff could actually be really good in the long run. So perhaps it was just part of that. But I would say a lot of it came from my parents' work ethic and, and just the mentoring that I got either from people that I met or the books I would choose to read. I love that you just share this about you wanting to help your parents at their restaurant and trying little things here and there to see if it would make things more efficient. And that sort of illustrates to me how you've moved forward through the rest of your life, like with this heart for serving and helping and fixing injustice and doing all the things you've done in your life. That was actually a very insightful little anecdote. And to me, it's just incredible to pull back and see what you have done with your life through being a child who had such a heart like that. And I think it's also really cool that you attribute a lot of that to your parents and watching their example. Oh, well, I might just saw how hard they worked. It's hard to like see that and then walk away and not do anything about it, to be apathetic about those things. I, I just tried to take a bit of that with me and in turn, applying that same kind of lens and the, the kind of same some kind of compassion towards other people. Because with my parents, I could see that. I had that relationship with them. There are other people that I interact with throughout the world who maybe have problems or maybe have issues that they're dealing with that I'm not aware of. And so it's like if they're struggling a bit and if perhaps they're rude or, or something else, I always take a step back and think like, well, what if they were close to me? What kind of allowance would I give them? Would I give them a chance to explain themselves or that kind of thing? Like, how could I treat them better? I feel like you were like a wise monk in a past life or something. <laughs> you just have like this like very high perspective on life. And it's really, really interesting. But, you know, as I said earlier, you juggle so many different creative pursuits and accomplish so many things. But as we discuss creativity, it seems that for many people, it's like the last thing on their to-do list being busy with work and life and family, that all takes priority over giving yourself the time to explore your creative passions. How do you do all these things? And how do you find the time and then manage to juggle all this? There's a couple of things. I mean, first of all, I don't try and find time. Like I have the same amount of time as every other person on this planet. I just choose to prioritize things differently. And in that sense, like I kind of put creative pursuits as one of my top priorities. Because I believe that when someone is living their life purpose, when they're fully articulating their values and doing the things they care about, it actually enriches every other area of their life. So mm. that's how you're in alignment with the universe. It's kind of like if I wasn't actually doing the things I loved and if I was working a job that I hated, I believe that it would negatively impact all of my relationships because I wouldn't be content. I wouldn't be able to like do the things that I really cared about. 
And so when I say like, this is a part of my self-care and this is a part of my self-development, by moving that up in the priority list, it allows me to see that in, in light of, okay, if I am going to do something for myself, how can I use it in a way that impacts other people like my partner or my family? And how can I use that to enrich everything else that I do? And so it's like when that becomes a top priority, the rest of the decisions become a lot easier. It's like, oh, do I want to sit here and binge a bunch of shows on Netflix or do I want to work on my art and crank out another book? The decision's already made for me at that point. <laughs> at the end of the day, what am I going to be proud of? What am I going to actually look back on at the end of my life and think that was a worthwhile use of my time? Oh, Simon, you are speaking my language. You just said so many juicy, awesome things that I love. You mentioned self-care, creativity being your self-care and a form of your self-development. And I completely agree with that. You know, when I started my own personal creative journey, I never imagined the kind of inner transformation that could happen by going down this path and really prioritizing my creativity. So that is really cool to hear you also articulate that because I think that's something people don't even really realize. Like, oh, you think you're making a song or you think you're doing a painting or you think you're baking this cupcake that you always wanted to do. But there's so much more that goes on than just that creative output you put out there. Absolutely. And it cultivates all kinds of great things like skills that you otherwise wouldn't necessarily necessarily have that could impact everything else that you do. I work with a lot of artists and a lot of them have day jobs and that kind of thing. But I'm like, at the end of the day, a boss is going to want to hire someone who is creative than someone who's not because it allows you to deal with things like finding solutions to problems more effectively. Like you could think outside mm -hmm. of the box. You could understand relationships. You know, for many years, I did marketing for a number of organizations. And whenever they asked me in the job interview, like why they should give me the job and not someone else, I always would tell them like, well, you're not going to have any other candidate who dropped out of school to tour in a punk band. <laughs> and I was like, well, why is that a good thing? And I'm like, well, for me, being on tour, it forced me to learn how to connect with an audience. And I'm like, you'll never find someone more hungry and more eager to connect with other people than someone who has to do that for a living night after night on stage. Mm. I learned social media because it was a means of connecting with an audience. And because of that, I learned it inside and out in ways that someone who has a multi-million dollar budget would never understand. And because of that, I could take the small amount of resources I have and do so much more with it. Yeah, every time I shared the story, I would get a job offer. You can talk to anybody else who went to school for this and graduated and you get the status quo. Or you can take the person who used this as their driving life force and got way more done than before the age of 20 than any, any of these kids did when they started reading a textbook about it. Oh my God, if a kid came into my office and said what you just said, I'd be like, you're hired. <laughs> that was amazing. <laughs> you know, that kind of life experience and wisdom is incredible. And you said something really interesting about learning how to connect with an audience being on stage and knowing how to connect with all those people in front of you. And I think that's really relevant to the people listening to this show in terms of creating work that connects with people. What did you learn about connecting with an audience being on stage and how did you do it? Well, in terms of like what I would do in all the bands that I performed in, I very quickly learned that, you know, I was performing in from early 2000s on. And by then, a lot of audiences were already jaded. Mm. You would go to a show and people would care more about like drinking at the bar or hanging out with their friends than anything else. They might be there to see their friend's band or someone else. But if they didn't know who you were, they didn't care about you. And they would rather just stand there with their arms crossed. 
And so it's like, you could either just get up there and play your songs. And if someone happened to be listening, liked it, then you made a fan, or you could do something that was truly delightful to that person. You met them where they were. So one of the things that I did was I tried to make relationships before I even got on stage. I would just walk around and introduce myself to people, especially if it was like a, a town that I've never been in before. I would tell them, hey, I'm here on tour with my band, What's some stuff I could check out. And people are always happy to talk about their hometown. They're so proud of like where they live. So I'm like, what are some of your favorite places to go? And I would just get to know them. So by the time that I got on stage, we were already friends. That connection was already made, so they felt obligated to watch. And then sometimes I would repeat back some of the stories like, oh, I heard this pizza place is the best in town, but someone else told me it was this and create like a friendly rivalry. In other words, I just engaged people based on mm. the information that they told me. I, I demonstrated that I listened to them, that I cared enough to retain that information. So in turn, they wanted to grant me their attention as well. Uh, I do the same thing when I'm speaking at events, especially if I don't know anybody there. I just start talking to people and kind of collecting stories and figuring out where people are, how they're feeling, and using that as a kind of a basis to navigate the rest of the event. But whether it's social media or, or the stage, it's the same kind of thing that's happening. Like if you're always treating life as if you're walking around with a megaphone, yelling at other people's faces, saying like, listen to me, look at the things I'm doing, they're not going to care about you. But if you instead treated things like it was a telephone, like an open conversation, all of a sudden, people feel much more invested in whatever you have because they see themselves as a part of it. That is genius advice, Simon. And I imagine you just learn this through your own experience. It's not on some like music blog somewhere, right? Like that's just so genius. It, it's just trying things out because I just needed to. Yeah. And for me, it's like not the easiest thing to do because I'm kind of an introvert by nature, I tend to be very shy and reserved. But when you're staring at an empty gas tank and you're like, oh, I need at least $70 to make it to the next town tonight, what can I do? I'll start making some friends you start realizing, oh, even if it originated as kind of this selfish desire of like needing to sell enough merchandise to, to fill the gas tank beyond how it begins, when you start making relationships with people, you realize how profoundly rewarding that is. And so it starts shaping other things that you do in light of that. Yes. And, you know, I'm not a performer, so I've never been on a stage. But what you're saying is really how I try to treat social media, you know, because your analogy of a megaphone versus a telephone is perfect. And nobody likes being yelled at. And I think with social media these days, it's changed a lot because, you know, like I mentioned, I worked in advertising and this was in the early 2000s up to the late 2000s. And for a while, advertising was very one way. It was like a megaphone. You know, a company has a message and, oh, you worked in marketing, right? So company had a message and you yell it out and wherever it hits, we don't know, you know, if it hits, you know, sales go up, but social media changed everything because it turned things into a conversation and that conversation and engagement and connection really does change everything. And it makes people more interested in you and then in the work you create. Yeah. I, I think the old model is that people just assumed that it was about awareness. In fact, you hear it all the time. Like, oh, if only more people knew about what we had, or more people knew about my art, then they would be into it. But that's not true. Most people are aware that 
Ethiopia is a country or that Antarctica is cold, it doesn't mean they want to visit there or they have plans to go to visit there. People are aware that kale is good for you, but not everyone wants to eat it at night. It's like, Mm -hmm. it's more than awareness. They have to see some kind of connection because they might be like, oh, it's in some of my favorite dishes. Therefore, I can incorporate it. You know, they have to have something more than awareness in order to take action. And for me, that was about developing relationships and engagement. That is great. And I really want to get more into your band. How did you start the slants? Can you tell us the origin story of that? Yeah, it actually started because I moved to Portland, Oregon in order to tour this other punk band. But as I was there, I was just like missing my culture because nobody told me, but Portland is called America's whitest major city for a reason. So (laughs) (laughs) I never knew that. Really? Yeah. And so I was like, okay, I I just missed hearing my language and my food and things I grew up with. So I was importing all these movies from Hong Kong to kind of kill the time. And around that time period, someone's like, you should watch Kill Bill, the Quentin Tarantino film. So I bought it the day it came out and I started watching it. And there's this one particular scene where this woman named Orni, she walks into the restaurant with her, the gang that she had led. And it was like such a profound moment for me. Like I paused the movie right there and started thinking about it. And I realized it was the first time that I had ever seen an American produced film that showed Asians as cool, confident, and sexy. Mm. And I thought, if Hollywood is bad, the music industry is really worse. And music is what I loved. It's what I dropped everything for to pursue. But I couldn't think of like any Asian Americans that have ever been featured on Rolling Stone or Billboard or, or Pitchfork or anything like that. So I thought something needed to change. And that's when I decided that I wanted to start a band that would celebrate the culture and this bold and relevant kind of way. Wow. That's an incredible story. And it's so sad that, what, 2004, I think we're the same age. So like we're 23 years old. And that's the first time you get to see somebody of your race on screen being cool and sexy. Yeah. That's crazy. I mean, you know, growing up, the only movies that really depicted Asian Americans in any kind of way that was relevant to classmates, it was like Long Duck Dong and 16 Candles. I mean, just horrific and embarrassing. And Mm -hmm. so it's like, it was like shocking to me because I I was used to seeing those characters in all the movies I bought from Hong Kong and from Japan and Korea. I was like, oh, we could be everyday normal people. We could be failures. We could be, you know, in addition to being martial arts stars, we could just be like people. And it was the first time. And because of that, I just thought, wow, it kind of was this epiphany for me that maybe I need to be doing something in the music industry because I couldn't think of any Asian American bands. And I thought, that's sad for like the kid that's Mm. growing up that wants to come up and do something after me. They should be able to find themselves in that industry. That's kind of how the idea was born. I mean, it took me like a couple of years before I could find enough people to put together a band. But once we did, we kicked it off and it was just amazing. And I would share stories about my own childhood, about being bullied, and all those kind of personal experiences I had. And it would automatically humanize us and connect us with audiences who had the same experiences. I mean, this is like 2006. Facebook wasn't really a thing. So I would get all these notes on (laughs) myspace.com, like kids who just said like, thank you for sharing your story. Thank you for showing me that this is possible. It was just the most sweet and wonderful thing. You know, there was such little representation when we were growing up. And any time any sort of representation at all came up, you know, I would just 
glom onto it because it gives you this, like you said, this possibility that I can exist out there and do things beyond what's being portrayed about me as an Asian person, you know, like the long duck dong or I read The Babysitter's Club growing up and I always loved this one character in there called Claudia Kishi because she was the artist and she was Asian and she was cool. (laughs) Yeah. My experience growing up was I was just a quiet, invisible girl. I feel like nobody knew I existed. Claudia Kishi was there just being cool, being artist, being herself. And that was so empowering to me. So I'm not surprised that your band resonated with the Asian American community so much. And I'm also curious, then, how did you come up with the name The Slants? Well, I wanted to write about our experiences, like our perspectives of what it's like to be people of color. So it originally dealt with that perspective or our slant on life of what it's like to be Asian American while playing music. But it also was a way to kind of flip the script in terms of this outdated stereotype that people have about Asians. You know, I would I would ask my friends, like, what's the thing you think all Asians have in common? And they'd always say, oh, slanted eyes, which I thought was interesting because it's not true. Like, not all Asians have slanted eyes. And then Asian people aren't the only people on earth to have any kind of slant to our eyes. So I thought, why is it always the stereotype? And why is it this like one feature? Like that's the physical feature that I was ridiculed for having as a kid and that would get kids to beat me up and that sort of thing. And it was something that I associated with shame. So I was like, you know, I want to change that. I want people to be proud of that instead. And so the idea for the slants was essentially born from that. I can see so clearly, Simon, that you have this very punk rock attitude about you. Like you said, you're a troublemaker. (laughs) And you saw this need for an Asian American rock band in the music space. But did you ever doubt yourself leaning into such an intentionally provocative name? No, because like for me, it was very obvious what I was trying to do with it. And I had Mm -hmm. seen other terms morph in my lifetime. Like the term queer when I was growing up is horrific, is terrible. But nowadays, it's like oftentimes the preferred nomenclature for those in the LGBTQ community. So I could see like how this term that was once used as a word of hate could be changed as something that was really bold and empowering. And I thought, that's just the coolest thing. And I watched a lot of other bands do similar kinds of things. So I thought, this is just right in line with all those other bands trying to be empowering about this. And whenever I interacted with Asian Americans, everyone was cool with it. They either saw it as something funny and it was kind of like this inside knowing kind of thing, or they just thought, hey, this is really awesome. We're going to kick the doors of racism and really have a conversation about this. For me, it was like kind of fascinating because Asian Americans never really said anything about it. But every once in a while, I would see like a non-Asian person at at a show and they would say like, so why did you call yourselves the slants? And it's almost like they wanted to say something, but they didn't know how to say it. And I thought it was like really kind of amusing because that's the power of reappropriating a term. It's like someone has to check in with you. They almost have to get permission to say like, is it okay for me to say this? Can we have a conversation Mm. about it? And that's what allowed me to engage so many people in these deeply moving conversations about race and identity. 
through just the power of this really empowering band name that you very intentionally chose. I love that you did that and you did it to reclaim a word that normally can be considered so derogatory to Asians. You know, I just recently posted a photo in my Instagram stories of this photo that was taken. It was like fashion editorial where it was a non-Asian model pulling her eyes into the slant. Mm -hmm. And it shocked me how many people were okay with that. I mean, this image had over 3,000 likes on it. 3,000 people thought that that kind of gesture was okay. And this idea of you taking back this gesture, this word, and making it empowering, I think is really inspiring. And we talk on the show a lot about owning your identity, owning your truth, owning your story, and putting that into your work, because that is how you make work that is powerful. Have you always been proud of being Asian American? Because I feel like by the time you decided to do this band and intentionally choose the name The Slants, you were very proud, but you also spoke about shame and being bullied. So how did that transition and transformation happen? You know, I, I don't know if there's any kind of neat line between those two. I would say that for most of my life when I was in public education, I wasn't proud. Because when you get made fun of as a kid for it, and it feels dehumanizing when you're embarrassed for who you are and have these attributes that you can't change about yourself, it does make one feel really ashamed. And so in middle school, like kids would beat me up over it. There are numerous times, but one, one of them jumped out at me in terms of like this memory. And I think it kind of planted a seed for all of my work later in my life. And it happened when I was in seventh grade. I was in charge of cleaning up the yard after PE because they just kind of rotated this duty. And as I was like picking up the volleyballs and basketballs and sports equipment, a group of four kids stayed back. They hid. And I didn't really find out that they were around until I noticed I was getting shoved to the ground. And as I look up at them, I see they're obviously ganging up on me. But it's like the scariest thing wasn't the fact that there's four of them and there's just one of me. It was that they were smiling. They were grinning and they were just genuinely enjoying that moment. And that's also when I realized I didn't think there was anything I could do. You know, they began punching me and kicking me in the stomach, all while yelling out Jap and yelling out gook at me over and over again. And it was at one point I finally snapped and I was like, look, I'm a chink. Like, if you're going to be racist, <laughs> at least do it properly. Like, that's how stupid you are. You don't even know how to be a proper racist. And they stopped and they walked away. It was like they were so shocked by that, they walked away. And I think there was some kind of lesson in there for me about the power of claiming an identity and saying, you can't use that against me. Like, you can kick me all you want, but this belongs to me and you can't have it. And the very message of saying those things became a form of power. You know, I wish I could say like every single encounter with bullies had some kind of wittier mark that, you know... <laughs> that sabotaged their efforts, uh, that disarmed them. It, it didn't. But there were moments like that in my life when I realized, hey, maybe it's okay to like stand up and, and claim this identity. And I think moving to Portland, uh, of all places, where I felt really alone, I felt like I, that part of me needed to come out. Like, okay, you need to embrace who you are and not let anyone stop you. It, almost as a means of survival. 
And then it was also just like this deep love of the culture that I felt like I didn't fully appreciate as a kid because my parents would pack lunches of Chinese food and I would be really embarrassed by it. Like I would try and trade it away because I wanted the normal kids food of the crappy Lunchables or that kind of thing. <laughs> but they would give me seaweed packets, which was like my favorite snack as a kid. And I would be really, really embarrassed because kids would be like, ew, that's gross. Why would you eat seaweed? So it was like this constant like back and forth of identity until I kind of was older and removed from that. And I guess a combination of those things really said, hey, this is who I am. And whatever shame that I had associated with my identity, my culture as a kid, I'm just going to lose that and, and fully embrace who I am and realize that by doing so, I was a lot happier for it. Mm, wow. You very intentionally chose a hard path. You wanted to be a musician, but you intentionally chose to create a band that was all Asian American when there was no other dance rock band like that out there. And I know you've received so many accolades and awards for your music over the years, but I also know you face plenty of negative responses too, purely because of being an Asian American band. And the fact that you leaned into that instead of being scared of it, I really admire that. But I also know how hard that is. Like, I can't imagine what that must have been like. Can you share about some of those experiences? Because I read about some of that. And I would love for people to hear about this, because the fact that you overcame that, I think, is what's incredible. Well, I think probably one of the toughest decisions I had to make was when I was contacted by a major label. And it was not like any major label. It was, in my mind, the major label, like the label I dreamt of since I was a kid. In fact, shortly after I picked up my bass, like at age 10, I hand wrote them a letter asking for addresses of musicians on their label who are my favorite bass players. <laughs> That's how much of a connection I had. So uh, when the A&R rep reached out to me, I was like, just so ecstatic. This was 2009, 2010. I met up with the rep and he actually gave me a contract and offered me a couple million dollars, but it came with a premise, like a contingency. And that was that I needed to replace my lead singer with somebody who was white. Wow. So I'm staring at this thing and they're telling me all the things that they would normally tell someone in that situation. Like, look, if you sign this paper, your parents could retire. Like you don't have wow. to worry about them forever. It was like jabbing right into me, like, what do I do? And I just kept thinking about it. And I was like, would my parents want me to sign this knowing that information, knowing the prejudice and racism that they experienced even just getting here and knowing all the experiences I had as a kid? And I couldn't do it. And I told the guy, I was like, you know, this is racist. I can't do it. And, and it was funny because he just kept trying to position it like he was doing me a favor. He's like, you're never... You're never going to be in Rolling Stone. You're never going to be a Billboard or any of these other magazines. They're never going to have an Asian band on there. But at that point, I was like, I couldn't do anything else but reject that offer. It's kind of funny because years later, we actually ended up being in Rolling Stone and Billboard and all these things. And I was like, I wish I, wish I still had this guy's number. It'd be like, in your face. <laughs> totally. I'm shaking my head this entire time you're telling this story because it's unreal. It sounds like something out of a movie with like the record label villain. I cannot believe that that is a real conversation and scenario you found yourself in. But it's also amazing that you were like hell to the no when you walked away and you still continued on to do amazing things in more than just your music. 
Yeah, it's just funny because there are people with that attitude still to this day. Yeah, I'm actually working on a tour right now because I'm going to spend most of this year in support of my book and in support of our band's new release that's coming out this spring. And sometimes people will still write me back and be like, oh, that's great, but who'd want to see an Asian band? I'm like, we were on Conan O'Brien. We toured your city before. This is not like some unknown thing. And people are still like throwing it back in my face like, yeah, but... This Asian author thing, we don't know if that's going to work out. That blows my mind, honestly, because it's like, hey, people responding back to you. Like, could you at least try not to be racist? It shocks me that flat out they're just like, we don't believe an Asian author will sell or an Asian musician can fill a venue. That's crazy. Yeah. And, and it's like funny because I'm like, did you all not see the records that Crazy Rich Asians broke? Come on. <laughs> right. And, and then I'm like, I also have a proven track record. I've toured like dozens of times all around the world and they're like yeah but maybe those are just exceptions like they're not exceptions that's the norm like we're killing it you should respect that and so for me it's they're actually doing me a favor because then i'm like you know what it provides more motivation for me because i think rather than lashing out at them or anything like that to me the best revenge is to live well is to succeed Mm -hmm. and show them that they were wrong I will always continue to live and say, like, I will thrive with or without you. You could be a part of this and be a part of this incredible movement that we have going on, or you could be out there regretting the fact that you turned this down. I feel like this very strong confidence in you to respond that way also stems back to your very punk rock, troublemaker, rebellious thing you have. You know, it's like very innate in you. But getting rejected for your work or even who you are, the color of your skin and the way you look and all of that tying back to creativity and the work we produce, it feels so incredibly personal. And I think there's a lot of fear of putting your work out there and being rejected because it feels so personal. It's like your soul is out there for the world to see and someone is stomping all over it. And it is a resilience that you build. It's like the more you do it, the easier it gets to face that kind of rejection. But do you have any advice to offer our listeners here who may face their own rejections as they journey down this creative path and they're just getting started? Well, I will say it still hurts sometimes. Like it still stings. It's like, how could it not? When you have something really personal, the art that you're creating into the world. But I always remind people who face rejection that it's okay. Those people are doing you a favor. They're giving you more motivation to succeed. And they're showing you that you don't need to waste your time with them because they're not who that piece of art is for. Mm -hmm. It's like if you're creating a song or a book or play and someone rejects it, it's okay. It's not for them. It's for somebody else. Someone else in this world needs to hear it, needs to see it. And so this is allowing you to get to them just a little bit faster. Because when you do find the right person that connects with the art that you make, there's something really profound in that. You just literally changed their world. You just created something out of your imagination, out of the depths of your soul to move them. And there's something that is so incredible about that, that we oftentimes take it for granted. So it's like, find the right audience, find those people, build a community around yourself of people who can help support you who can keep you accountable and give you honest feedback, but who knows you and knows what you stand for. When you have those people beside you, it makes these little slights a lot more bearable. And then as you start experiencing a little bit of success, you'll realize those slights 
they're just part of the price. They're part of the steps of getting to where you need to be and who you need to become as a person. Oh, Simon, that was amazing advice. And you know, you're absolutely correct. The art and the things we create, it's not meant for everybody. So I really appreciate you validating that message again, because it's so important. And I don't think listeners can hear that enough. I do want to just touch briefly on what happened in your journey with trying to trademark your band name, The Slants. I don't want to get too deep into it because we're already at almost an hour of talking and I feel like we could talk about this for just like another two hours. <laughs> but for, for those listening, there is so much information out on the web about what happened when Simon tried to trademark his band name, The Slants, with the USPTO. And it was a journey that lasted eight years, was it? Yeah, eight years. That's crazy. It went all the way to the Supreme Court. And what happened at the Supreme Court? Well, it felt like it was just kind of the final chapter, like the final boss stage in this long saga of the government saying that the name of my band is racist towards Asian people, which was just absurd because we're an all Asian band and we do anti-racism work. But going to the Supreme Court, I thought was just a really interesting part of that experience. Because like for me, I, I look up to the court, I think it's like this really important function in, in terms of the balancing our government. But I was also really afraid because I was like, they don't know me. They don't know who I am. They don't know what we stand for. I also say that it's not common for musicians or artists to be in the courtroom. It's not even common for any kind of client to be there, but we're the second musical act that has ever been in the Supreme Court. Wow, who was the first? Two Live Crew. <laughs> oh my God, that's crazy. Yeah, over a copyright suit, over using the song Pretty Woman. Wow. Really funny and strange. But uh, yeah, about 20 years after they went, we were up before the court over this idea of freedom of expression and where the government is allowed to draw those lines. So being in the courtroom was just, it felt really like I knew I couldn't speak in that courtroom because I'm not allowed to, all, only attorneys. But I wanted to get as much of the symbolism as possible. So I actually crowdfunded my way there and made sure that everyone in my band could join me because I was like, I want them to look at us in the eyes and tell us we're offensive to ourselves, that we can't change language for empowerment reasons. I wanted them to stare at us. And so we're in the courtroom, we're watching everything that's going down. And one of the justices notices we're there and starts smiling at us. I'm like, mm. oh, this is really weird. And like, we didn't know how to react. My, my guitarist <laughs> is just like grinning and like staring back. And he's like, I don't know if I could look away or not. <laughs> um, <laughs> meanwhile, all these justices and attorneys are arguing. They're using the name of my band. They're using my name. They're talking about, oh, how it's racist and that kind of thing. And I'm like, none of you know me. None of you understand what we we're going through. You weren't there when we were lifting those kids up in those bullying programs. You weren't there when we were like helping them with thoughts of suicide or playing for an Asian American festival and talking about issues of race. But as all these thoughts were like flying around in my head, there's one particular moment that jumps out. And that was when this little voice speaks up and it is... Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And she finally saw wow. and she's like, hey, doesn't it matter that everybody knows the slants are Asian? They're not using the word to disparage, but to describe and to remove the sting from the word. It's like she just cut through all that clutter, all that nonsense. It was like, bam. And I was like, first, I mean, you know, I was like stunned. First of all, I was like, yo, I think I'm in love with the Supreme Court justice. Right? Oh, my God. <laughs> and then second of all, it was like, I felt like she finally 
saw me like she saw years and years someone sees this and it's funny because the government their only response was like well we've read articles on the internet that suggested otherwise but really what he was talking about was urbandictionary.com and these random like wiki joke sites because they were quoting like white supremacist message boards as their evidence oh my god instead of using all of the widely available evidence that the asian american community was in support of our work it was like just almost like a circus in terms of what you would expect the government to be able to provide yeah that was the experience of the court it just felt like this major battle but i felt like i didn't really have a lot to do with it because they're just talking about these bigger themes most of the the work we had been doing were the seven years before that but that being said there was one particular thing that made that entire trip for me and it was after the supreme court so it wasn't even in the courtroom when we walked out and i'm like kind of frustrated kind of floored that rbg threw us a little shout out uh you know like but also just worried about what was going on and how people interpreted the case and as we were walking down the steps of the supreme court i noticed that the plaza the courtyard outside of it is filled with tons of people and i'm like what are they all doing here there's no tours today because there's court that's in session you can't tour it today and as we were walking down the steps the crowd looks up they see us and they just start erupting in applause. They start yelling and, and, and cheering us as we're walking down. Apparently, most of them had waited all night long to try and get into the courtroom to be there to support us. It was wow. like, wow, they get it. And then as I get to the this courtyard, two kids run up to me. They're freshmen in high school who had flown out there from California. Oh and, my gosh. And they were Asian American kids. So first of all, a miracle that their parents let them ditch school to be there, but, <laughs> Seriously? but they were there and they're like, Simon, we grew up our entire lives hearing about the man who's willing to fight for the dignity of choosing what's best for our own community. We grew up knowing about the slants and what you did. So our parents let us come here to be here for you. We couldn't get in because we, we didn't get here early enough, but we want to do a school report on you. Can we ask you a few questions? And did you cry? Well, <laughs> I would have been crying. <laughs> well, not yet. But then they told me this thing. They were like, they told me that they were freshmen in high school and that they wanted to go into public policy development when they graduated <sighs> oh from college in the future because of the work that I was doing. And I'm oh like, gosh. you're freshmen and you know what public policy development is? I was like, <laughs> wow. It was like, at that point, I was like, you know what? It doesn't matter if we win or we lose at the Supreme Court. We already won in the, the hearts of the people, the people that mattered. And there's already going to be this other generation that's going to come up and start being their own troublemakers and start creating their own art and activism in the world. That's what it was all about. So the legal battle, yeah, it was long and frustrating. And there were moments that were really amazing. And there were a lot of moments that just made me super depressed. But when I started hearing those words from those kids, I realized it was all worth it because we, we were able to start this movement where people were waking up to their own power that they had within themselves. Wow, Simon, that story is unbelievable. And when I look at your life and look at all the things you've done, the theme I see emerge is that you're consistently choosing the harder path. It's not on purpose. I don't like doing hard things. <laughs> 
But it's your soul. I feel like there is something in your soul that yearns to do what you believe is the right thing. And doing the right thing isn't always the easy path. And I guess, is it that? Is it that kind of change and inspiration you can give other people that makes that all worth it for you? I mean, I think it's worth it. It was like, kind of goes back to that idea that I think it's like choosing to go after your dreams, living by your values. It's not what's hard, what you have to sacrifice in order to do it. It's what you lose in yourself when you don't mm. do the right thing. And I believe that when you do the right things, when you truly go after your values and values that benefit the most amount of people, especially those that are the most marginalized in society, when you do right by that, everything else will fall into place. It might take a while. It might take eight years for it to happen, but it mm. will. And when it does, it'll be worth it. That's a great reminder too, that it's not always instantaneous. Sometimes it takes a long time. And I think the thing that's so hard about this creative journey is that it's not the easy path. I think we all realize at this point that it's not the easy path and things don't happen quickly. And the easier thing sometimes is to give up. And if you keep doing what you're describing, you know, really trying to live in alignment with what you believe is right, what you really feel like is the work you're meant to do, it really is completely worth it. I'm curious, how do you see all this work you're doing through your activism, through your music, through your books, through your podcast, through your TED Talks? How does this connect to your life purpose and why you think you're here? Well, for me, it's just trying to leave the world in a little bit better shape than that I was able to live through it. It's about trying to create that positive change in the world. So everything that I do, whether it's music or, or writing or the ideas that I try and spread through speaking, it's this thing that I have in my mind is like, I want to try and just give as much value to other people as possible. And it's just been kind of my main motivating force. And that's why after we won at the Supreme Court and after all that was over, I thought, well, what can we do with our platform now? Do I just go back to making music? and pretending like that was just a, a giant detour. And I thought, no, there's got to be a way to be more strategic about this. And so that's why I started an arts organization. Our band started the Slants Foundation, which is a nonprofit where we provide scholarships and mentoring to Asian Americans who want to incorporate activism into their art. Mm. Growing up, I had so many gatekeepers to deal with, so many challenges that I don't want to see other people face perhaps I could help make it a little easier for them. You know, we have all these like wonderful foundations out there who give out money to in terms of like arts grants and that sort of thing. But you have to be a registered nonprofit to receive that money. And many artists, many creatives aren't their own nonprofit. So how do they actually get access to those resources? So I thought, why don't we be that middle person? Why don't we raise money and then give it to the people who need it, who are doing really great things? What's the point of just trying to be more famous in terms of my music or my books? There's no point to it. But if I could leave a legacy by helping empower other people and allowing future generations to carry that work forward, to me, that's the thing to invest in. And that's what I've been using to try and kind of like make my everyday decisions. Wow. You know, one of the things... I talk about on the show a lot is just how important it is to start the thing that you want to start because you have no idea where it's going to take you. 
you know, like for me, I never imagined I'd end up with the podcast someday talking to people about creativity just because I picked up a camera one day. And I feel like your story is just such a perfect example of that. You know, you started a band and look at all the incredible things that have grown and evolved from that. So I'm so thankful that you're out there as this inspirational figure to us to show people that you can use your art and creativity to do really amazing, powerful things. And your art isn't just limited to, you know, what people typically think of as being creative. Your art is your activism. And I think that's really amazing. Absolutely. Yeah. It's just about like the act of creation is a really powerful thing because you create things when you start expressing yourself, whether it's through mm-hmm. a medium like a paintbrush or an instrument, or it's just speaking out about something you see in the world that you want changed. That's all part of creating. And so mm-hmm. it's amazing how powerful that intention and expression can actually be. You never really know what, what's going to happen. No one starts a band thinking they're going to go to the Supreme Court. I certainly didn't. Exactly. And, and there, there we go. <laughs> Exactly. And, you know, I saw you majored in philosophy and religion. Well, that was my original major. That's what I dropped out of that program. So I eventually went back and got an MBA studying business. But yeah, I've always been really into philosophy and religion. I I do consider myself a person of faith. So it's been a big, important part of me. Hmm. I am so curious about the connection between spirituality and faith and creativity and the work we create. And I am curious, where do you think your ideas come from? Well, I don't know if I have any original ideas. I don't know if anyone really does. I think we create ideas by fusing things we already learned. And so it's probably a combination of my family upbringing. Some of the values probably came from like going to Sunday school with my grandparents at this Taiwanese Lutheran church. And then just interacting with as many people on the planet as possible. Just start learning about other cultures and learning about other ideas. But when you have an idea for, say, a new song, where do you think that comes from? Because, you know, people talk about muses or some people feel like the idea just drops in their head. And I'm just curious what your take on that is. And I could see how people think that there's a muse or some people believe that it's like it was created by by God or like they derived inspiration from another source, like, you know, looking at a painting or something. For me, I actually write songs and write material for books in a very different way. Like I don't think of it as a muse. I think about intention, like what is the thing I want to express? What is the idea that I wish would exist in this world in a particular way? And I start thinking about that and concentrating on those ideas or those values. And then everything else kind of comes from that. Based on everything you've shared, that totally makes sense to me. Oh, good, it, good, it's it, very Simon. <laughs> it only half makes sense to me. <laughs> I think about like the last few songs I wrote. I'm like, well, how did those ideas come about? It was just like, oh, I really want to write a song about this. And mm. and then I would just start writing and seeing what happened. And, and then it would just kind of start taking shape after that. What do you do to feed your own creativity? Oh, I absolutely love consuming other arts. I mm. love reading. I'm a prolific reader. I try and read like two books a week. What? Yeah, I, I, I love reading. <laughs> wow. Yeah, I, I love reading. I, I like listening to music and things. And whenever I listen to other music or, or read books or, or watch a performance, it actually inspires me. It makes me want to go back to the drawing board and create something new. So it's kind of funny. Like once, once you're in like a place of creating, like you're just writing all the time or making music all the time, it's like you just want to keep doing it all the time. And if you keep experiencing art 
and the way it's meant to be expressed by different artists at different mediums, it just inspires you want to keep doing more. For some people, they just like going to the gym every day because that's like their habit. They start cultivating that and building it into their schedule. I cultivated this habit of writing every single day and good or bad, I just write. And so it's become a lot easier. Oh, I love what you just said. Good or bad, you just write. I think people get so hung up on that, trying to create something that's perfect. And you got to just do it. Yeah, because you know we're afraid. We're afraid that's going to be bad, that someone's going to judge us by it. But it's like, if you made this commitment to just create and publish every day, if you knew everything you wrote was going to be published, you would get better because you're like, mm-hmm. okay, well, I better step up. And if you become a prolific reader and you start appreciating the art that other people create, it adds to your own. It enriches what you do. You know, just do it. It's okay to have bad songs every once in a while. That's all right. It's okay to have a bad book or a film. You just keep going and it will get better. How do you want people to remember this episode with you? Probably the the number one thing that I would love for people to remember is that if they focus on their values, if they focus on the things that they want to see exist in this world, that there are an infinite number of possibilities in terms of what they can accomplish and what they can create. We shouldn't allow something as silly as fear or insecurity to hold us back because what you get when you actually create the things that you're destined to make, it so outweighs everything else. And so when you start really truly becoming the person you're meant to be, that's when you can really shine and start really making that impact on the universe. Simon, oh, thank you so much for all your time today and all your wisdom and for existing in this world so much as yourself and putting this incredible stuff out there. You really are such an inspiration to me and I know to my listeners, and I'm really thankful to have you on. Oh, thank you so much for, for having me and for taking the time and, and for doing all the research, like seven pages. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like you could write like a Wikipedia on this. I probably could. I, you know, I'm a little bit of an overachiever sometimes. So, <laughs> and you've done a lot of amazing stuff. So I had a lot of good material to weed through. And um, yeah, I just really appreciate everything you're doing. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed the episode, please rate and review the show on iTunes and share it with a friend. Don't be shy. Reach out to me anytime online and I will catch you next week on the next episode.